Hey guys, I'm Jim. I am one of the pastors here. Hey, happy September. We made it. We made it another month, which is a big deal this year. Uh, so congratulations to yourself. Also congratulations and thank you so, so much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. If you are watching from home, thank you for joining us there. And if you are here and you are visiting, it's especially great to have you. If you have any questions about life here at Fellowship, please go stop by the Welcome Center out in the Commons, and we have a, a team there masked up, uh, ready to discuss with you at a respectable difference, uh, distance <laughs> all, the, all the answers you may have about life, love, and the pursuit of happiness, especially questions about Fellowship Greenville. <clears throat> also, if you are new and you are curious, uh, is, is the girl from that video just a minute ago as beautiful and wonderful and awesome and incredible as she seems? Yes, yes, she is. Wow, clapping for my wife, hey! Congrats, Sarah. Uh, I am um, <laughs> just terribly hum and humbly and happily honored to be uh, her husband, and I have no idea how she tolerates me. And if you ever find out who's paying her, please don't tell me thank you so, so much. Now, uh, as you may know, we are currently studying our way through the New Testament book of John together on Sunday mornings, and maybe you have recalled us saying this, but John is the most unique of the four biographies of Jesus that we have in the Bible. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all tell the Jesus story, but John does so with language and stories and emphases that are often distinct from the other three. And John also tells us the precise purpose for why he's doing it the way he's doing it. So right when you get to the end of John, <clears throat> he says this. He says, these things are written. This is why I'm doing this. These things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So everything John is doing in this book, he is doing so that we would trust and believe and swear allegiance to Jesus as the Messiah King, as the one who is God come in the flesh. And so broadly, very broadly, today we have another portrait of Jesus, and this is what we get to keep thinking about today in a very broad sense, and we'll do so today from John chapter 13. If you wanna go ahead and get there in your Bibles, we'll get there in a few minutes, I promise. <clears throat> John chapter 13. Now, <clears throat> while the world has been pretty crazy for the past four or five months, we all know this, uh, it has allowed uh, book snobs like myself a little bit more flex time to read, for which I am grateful. And one of the favorite, my favorite things that I get to do as a pastor <clears throat> is quite literally every week, somebody will call me, somebody will text me, somebody will email me and say, hey, give me a book suggestion for for this or that, and I love, 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 love doing that, and so today for everybody, here's a pretty wild card book recommendation. It's called A War of Loves by David Bennett. David is currently getting a PhD in philosophy and apologetics at Oxford, so my man is not dumb, and as you can see by the subtitle up there, this is definitely gonna be an interesting read. <clears throat> when David came to faith in Jesus, he started attending two different churches. One was like, like biblically Baptocostal, which is my favorite denomination that doesn't exist. And David's personal experiences with God at this first church were, were really life-changing to him. <clears throat> However, he found a lot of people at that church to be very unkind and not willing to hear his own story from his perspective. And so for community, David started going to this other church that was more affirming of who he was because not only did they freely embrace him as someone a part of the LGBTQ plus world, 
But this other church, their embrace of people in general was usually to the exclusion of actually keeping people accountable and holding up God's word as the standard for God's people. So again, if you get this book, it will be quite a a fun journey and you can hear David's interesting experiences. But I have to tell you one of them because it's just too good not to share. Um, Before David came to faith in Jesus, he was leading like marches and, and parties for the LGBTQ plus community and rising to prominence in that world. But he was also leading anti-religion and anti-Christianity marches because he was saying that all religion was hateful and oppressive. <clears throat> and during that time of David's life, a friend said to him, hey man, just for the heck of it, let's go get a psychic reading where they look at your palms and they flip over some cards and they tell you about your life. <clears throat> and David was like, fine. He rolled his eyes and he, he goes to the psychic reading thing. And I'm not kidding. They go in and it's a girl in a purple velvet coat with dreadlocks named Rose. So all the like things that you're thinking, yes, that's, this is probably who Rose is right now. And so Rose starts to read David's cards and his palms and she stops and she open her eyes, opens her eyes wide at David and she goes, you are very blessed. You are a child of light destined to be with the greatest mediator in the spiritual realms, Jesus Christ. He has chosen you. And David goes, what the Moses is that? Like he, <clears throat> he doesn't, and if you ask me to explain it, I got no clue, so don't ask me, okay? So that's the kind of fun stories that David includes in his book. However, right before David came to faith in Christ, he helped host this big Mardi Gras parade and party for his friends and the extended LGBTQ plus community. And something happened there that led to his breaking point of admitting his need before God. So he plans this parade, everything goes off without a hitch, big, loud, colorful, everybody's having a blast. And then there's this after party and everybody's dancing and doing their thing and having fun. And David took this journal that he used to write in all the time and he wrote a question in it and he passed the journal and the pen around the room because he wanted to get everybody's opinion on the question. And he wanted everybody to answer the question, what is Love And if you do read the rest of David's story, you'll see that this is not a random fun party trick. This is the question that David pursued his whole life. It wasn't a random thing. He had been grappling for years with this. What is true and lasting love and connection? That's why he calls the thing a war of loves. So he passes his journal and his pen around the room and it circulates for a couple few hours and he gets dozens of responses back and uh, obviously he gets, he gets people saying, baby, don't hurt me from the 90s dance song, no question, that's what I would have put. Uh, he gets other people with really superficial answers and some like kind of playful, jokey responses. He got some really explicit answers. He got some deeply jaded and like <clears throat> kind of angsty and angry answers. He had a few people who tried to like wax poetic and quote a philosopher or Plato or something. But as the party died down, David sat down to read, to re- to read all of these responses. And he said that after he finished reading them, it left him with an immediate void. He says, nobody answered any, in any way that was, that was satisfying. Nobody really got anywhere with this question. David writes, those pages showed me an empty abyss. Maybe, I thought, in the end, we're all just slaves to our biological impulses. Maybe love is a game of illusions 
in the reality of a blind and pitiless indifference. But David was not swayed by nihilism's siren songs. He closes the chapter in which he tells that story by saying the following. The war to find love still raged within me. I knew that there had to be a higher love that corresponded to my desire for intimacy. And leaving the club that night, I felt the facade begin to crack. Now, I, I don't have time to prove it. And I actually don't think I really need to. <clears throat> but, I, but I deeply believe this. You and I are just like David. And I'm not saying our stories are the same. I mean, regardless of your experience, whether you were raised in church and you still love the church, <clears throat> or whether you're just checking out this Jesus and faith and gospel thing for the first time, or whether you're kind of angry at God and you might even be doubting that he's out there, I, I think that we're all on a hunt like this to find a love that makes sense of things, to find a love that includes intimacy and connection and purpose and belonging that's beyond just a simple good time. And, and I do think David is further right. This, this hunt, this pursuit is not a passive thing. It's it's kind of like war. There are so many different definitions of love battling for our attention and our affections. <clears throat> it's like a competition. It's like, which version of love are you gonna go with? And if you're a follower of Jesus, we're often tempted, <clears throat> I don't know about you, we're often tempted to just acknowledge, yes, God's way of love in Jesus is the way to do things, but then practically, we sometimes opt for a culturally contingent view of love, and we know that it's just a facade that's soon to crack. And so all, all this means that we have to ask David's question alongside him, and for, for our purposes this morning, we're gonna extend the question a little bit. Yes, what is love, <clears throat> but what is love, and what does it do? We all know love is more than an emotion. We all know that it, is, it includes action. It does stuff, but what it does comes out of what it is. And so that's what we need to think about today. What is love and what does it do? And rather than having some distracted people in a bar respond in a journal, I'm glad that we have Jesus responding to this question in God's word. Our passage today is John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35, and here Jesus is going to help us answer our question. <clears throat> also, I'll read our passage, and then I get my line, which is the word of God for the people of God, and then comes your line out loud together, thanks be to God, and make it sound like you're happy and grateful for God's word that he has given us. Our passage, John 13, 31 through 35, what is love and, and what does it do? Here we go, John 13, verse 31. <clears throat> when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment, though, I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if 
you have love for one another. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, Charlie has done an incredible job in the past few weeks setting the scene here of what it would have been like to be in the upper room that night with Jesus and with his disciples. Like, they could feel that something important was getting ready to happen with Jesus. They didn't know exactly. Jesus knew that he was getting ready to go die, and his friends could tell that something was up, but they didn't know, know exactly. And so uh, you also have the fact that their hearts, the disciples, their hearts were probably pretty worshipful and grateful and celebratory because as Jewish people, they were there to celebrate the Passover. And that was a big, fun, happy time in Israel's calendar. And then out of nowhere, Jesus takes the lowly, shameful, embarrassing, and disgusting job of washing their feet, which Again, on its own, Charlie did a great job explaining this, on its own was enough to totally bewilder them and make them like a deer uh, in the headlights. And then again, you have the utter shock. He had been with them for three years. You have the utter shock of Judas's betrayal, and that would have left everybody in the room feeling next level awkward, confused, and heavy with just floating question marks swirling in their brains. And it's into all of these tensions that Jesus begins to speak. And as John writes all of John, he intends for us to read John chapters 13 to 17 as a single section, a single literary unit, because it all happened in just a couple of hours. And starting here in verse 31, the rest of these chapters are almost all Jesus' teaching. And it's, I mean, if you just read it by itself, starting in John 13, 31, through the end of chapter 17, you read it on its own, it's powerful. But it's especially powerful in light of everything that has happened in the first part of chapter, uh, chapter 13. So the first thing that Jesus says in this massive discourse is he says something about glory. It's kind of weird, we'll look at it. He says something about being with them, being with his friends, and then he says something about love. And those might seem like different ideas, and we're gonna untangle that, but if we're paying attention, this is exactly how Jesus ends the discourse at the end of chapter 17. In the last lines of chapter 17, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I made note to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And if you read your Bible a lot, you'll know that when something begins and ends the same way, that's what the whole thing is all about. So what we're dealing with here in Jesus's discourse is a set of bookends around all of his teaching. So that means everything in the upper room on this fateful night, everything in John 13 through 17 is somehow about glory, it's somehow about being with Jesus, and it's somehow about love, and especially about love. That's what's at stake here. And we know it's somehow (coughs) about love because that's the last note that Jesus sings in chapter 17, and he's offering us a fresh and holy perspective on love, and this is no flimsy definition of love. So let's look at a few pieces of our passage for a minute to figure out how all this thing works or how all this stuff works and and what what this love is like. Look at verses 31 and 32. Now, um, maybe you felt it when I read it, but now as the Son of Man glorified, God is glorified in him, God glorified in him, God also glorified him and himself, glorified him at once. Hey, 
what's happening, John? Like, Jesus, could you help me a little bit? Like, even in English, it feels a little clumsy. The Greek is a little bit uh, poetic. But what Jesus is doing here is he's saying four things about his relationship with his Father. Four very simple things. One, God the Father is glorified when Jesus the Son is glorified. Two, God the Father has been glorified in Jesus, past tense. Three, God the Father will be glorified in Jesus the Son, that's future tense. And four, look at the last two words in verse 32, look right there, at once, that's the word immediately. This is about how God is getting ready to be uniquely glorified in Jesus. So this is future tense, but this is like immediate, close future tense. So this is about Jesus going to the cross. This is what the disciples could feel, but they didn't totally understand at the time. But you and I, we live on this side of the cross and resurrection, and we know all of John's gospel. We know that the cross is the supreme place where God's love is poured out, and thus the supreme place where God's glory and worth are understood. So as in all of John, so in this text, glory is the goal and love is the means. Love is the vehicle. And we can even look backwards in John and see all of this in seed form in John's intro in chapter one when he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. <clears throat> and then, watch this, tied to the glory language, Jesus addresses them with a term of endearment in verse 33. He says, little children. And this is the only time this word is used in all of John. This is like when your kids are little and you say, hey buddy or hey sweetie, right before you give them a hug. It's, it's a really affectionate term of belonging. And I think, and I haven't, I didn't, I need to study more on this. I think that Jesus uses such a gentle term right here because what he's getting ready to say next is going to be really, really heavy. They had been with each other for three years and Jesus goes, hey, where I'm going, you can't come with me. So that would have been crushing for them, heartbreaking for them. And we'll talk about this more next week. Like Jesus is going somewhere, they can't go. We'll talk about it more next week because shocker, Peter's got something to say about it. No surprise there. But the deal is, in our text, Jesus has an agenda for them and why they can't go and be with him. And the agenda is, verse 34 and 35, love. That's Jesus's agenda. <clears throat> and I love what N.T. Wright in his commentary says right, says right here um, because he's, he's, again, feeling what they were feeling in the upper room um, and everything that had happened so far. Tom Wright says, it's been hard for the disciples up to this point to even appreciate what Jesus had been doing on their behalf, but now he's telling them to go copy him. Okay, do you feel that? And that's a little bit funny. <clears throat> like, they're trying to understand, okay, what's going on? And now Jesus goes, now go do the same thing. Okay, so there's, <clears throat> please use your imagination when you read the Bible. Like, that's a little bit funny. So just just think for a second. It's your second week on the job. You want to impress everybody. You get the vibe and the essence and the ethos of your new workplace, but you still have lots of questions and you're kind of giddy about the whole thing. Boss walks into your office on the first day of week three, throws you a notebook on your desk and goes, hey, this is our new game plan. Thank you so much for being on top of it. And you look like you have seen a ghost square dancing. It doesn't make any sense to you. You've got so many questions, but you can't even figure out how to ask them. Like, like you're all in at this new thing and you kind of know what that means, but, but, but not really. Something like that is what Jesus' friends are feeling in the upper room. 
the eternal glory of God in Christ for and with his people needs to look like love. And what does this love need to look like? Well, that's why we have John 14, 15, 16, and 17. And that's why we're gonna take our time there. However, we still have enough here in our passage to fill out our question a little bit. What is love and what does it do? We, we still have enough to answer that. So let's do it. Look at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, love one another. Anything strange about that? Yeah, he's already said that you should love people. In fact, if you just take the Bible that they had, <clears throat> the Hebrew Bible, the, the, what we call the Old Testament, time and time again, God said that you should be loving other people. So how is this new, right? Jesus, uh, you already, hey, you already said that. Like why, why and how is this new? I got three ways to explain that that have helped me in my studies. Well, the newness of this is that it is a new era of love. Jesus is inaugurating God's kingdom right here and right now. He is bringing heaven to earth. And previously God's law was written on stone and now he's writing his law on people's hearts and our hearts should be the source of our love and his law is love and his gospel is peace. So it's a new time period in which Jesus reigns as Messiah. Never before, never before has the Christ come bringing God's loving and rescuing reign from the future backwards into the present, but that's what Jesus is doing. And so it's a new era of love. But some of the newness, some of the newness in verse 34 is that there is a new depth of love that Jesus is showing them. He has just washed their feet. He had even, and this is still, I'm still getting over this. He even washed the feet of his betrayer. Like that kind of love, when Charlie, in, in that sermon, that kind of love feels wasteful. Like, oh, no, 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 no. You know what he's gonna do with that? Like it feels a little much. It's unheard of. This is a kind of love, this is a new depth. This is a kind of love that is never not bursting at the seams and spilling over. Think about it. The disciples would have never, without Jesus' example, never considered foot washing to be a loving act. What kind of coach, after practice is done, spends extra time with the C team? What kind of head of state, after all the lights are cut off, goes out of the way to help the weakest and the poor? What kind of king serves the servants? This is a new depth of love. But in writing, John knows, he knows what he's doing. He wants us to feel what the disciples felt that night in the upper room. But he also wants us to read the whole book and interpret everything in light of the cross. And if we do that, the foot washing here is a symbolic shadow of how Jesus came to eternally make people clean through the cross. We have dirtied up our own souls with the filth of our sin and selfishness and the messiness of this world, but Jesus came to make us clean by going to the cross in our place. <clears throat> and so the, the ultimate newness here is that there is a new motive. Love one another just like I love you. So this is the climactic reason for the newness. There's a new motive going on here. And this is good news, and it's really powerful when, when it sinks in, right? But we can't forget that in our culture right now, there is a war of loves, like David Bennett says. There are people that want to define love basically as tolerance. 
And they might say the most loving thing that you can do for somebody is just not offend them. And that feels a little shallow as far as the definition is concerned. Other people want to define love just in terms of romantic feelings. They're always out to scratch some emotional intimacy, romantic fix. They're, they're, they're out to scratch that itch and they're just looking for the next rela relational romantic high. Others still say that love is just merely personal satisfaction or existential happiness or as long as I feel good, comfy, and cozy. And the thing that <clears throat> scares me is that as Jesus followers, sometimes we spend way too much time trying to see what kind of mileage we can get out of these competing versions of love. And so we have to recall, these definitions of love all fall short in their own ways and will eventually fall short at death when I die. But there is a love that's stronger than death. That is John's bigger point if you read the whole thing. That's the wide lens interpretation on love one another just like I love you because there's a new motive in play. There's a new paradigm for love. And it, it, it's sad what I'm getting ready to say. It's sad that I have to point this out and I'm talking about for my, my own heart as well as like you know us as a family and you guys as the people I get to help pastor. It's sad that I have to point um, this out, but there's always an object to love. And here's what I mean. A lot of people will just go, well, love wins, woo-hoo. But Jesus is saying that your love should be directed at people. Like, like love always has a place to land, and that's on people. <clears throat> and, and here's what that means. Love is not primarily about us feeling love. That, that's not love. Do, do, do you get this? Love is not about what might be gained by the one doing the loving. Do you get that? I, I don't sometimes, <clears throat> right? When, when you love somebody, it's not about the amount of ease or comfort or control or kickback involved with the loving. When Jesus says, love one another, there's not a subtext of, oh, whoa, guys, only if you have enough time. There's not a subtext of love one another only if you basically already agree with them about everything from politics to parenting. No, 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 no. He doesn't say love one another, oh, as long as it doesn't complicate your life or exhaust you or make your life messy. No, 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 this love, love one another, has an object, and this love is audaciously others-centered. And the way I think about love in my daily life is not. This verse 34 <clears throat> reminds me of a famous prayer by St. Francis of Assisi, which I used to always love to say. Um, and his story, St. Francis, <clears throat> it was really instrumental in my dad coming to Jesus. St. Francis prayed, O divine master, Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, and to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. <clears throat> now if that's a little too King James for you, I'll break it down, because this is a, a really terrifying prayer. Do you pray like this? God. Make me comfort people more than I am comforted. Make me understand people more than I am understood. Make me love people more than I want to be loved and feel love, for it is in giving that we receive. That's the gospel. 
And that turns the tables on how we normally feel about life. <clears throat> That's what Jesus is doing here. Just like he flipped tables in the temple, he's turning the tables on how we should think about love. He's telling his friends, he's telling us right now that love in the kingdom is like a king with a towel and it's like a king with a cross. It does not make sense to our normal experience, but it's also precisely the picture of how we are supposed to love one another. And this leads us to answer the first part of our question, what is love? Love is the divine disposition towards others that seeks their highest good, even at great personal costs. Again, love is the divine, it's the godly, it's the holy, it's the unique, one that's not naturally what we think and feel. It's the divine disposition towards others that seeks their highest good, even at great personal costs. And the highest good for any individual is to be swept up into the glory of God with his people. And those things are the preamble to Jesus's command here. And when you love people like Jesus loved you, I actually believe this. It's hard for me to sense it as a part of my daily life. But when you love people like Jesus loved you, you won't get bogged down in whether or not it's costing you something because you'll be motivated by the gracious love of Christ and not feeling like you have to work your way into his love and into his favor. This is what love is. It's God's posture in the gospel of Jesus to embrace people for their good. So let's do a little practical application class. <clears throat> How you doing with that? How does that work for you? Are you, the word more is important here, are you more out for the good of others or for your own good? Do you assess all of your relationships based primarily on what you can get out of them? We'll just do some low-hanging fruit. How about that? When your spouse does something that you have oh so kindly asked them not to do, do you first think and file away, well, now I have a coupon to do whatever I want of something of equal or lesser value. That's the MO for a lot of marriage, right? But be honest with yourself. Get this. Would you rather understand people or be understood by people? Jim, number two. That's how selfish I am. I would far, I would, give me B. I want people to understand me. Is your reflex reaction when you think about your kids and your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors and your extended family, is your initial thought and reaction when you think about them, what they can do for you and at what level they can make you feel loved? Here's the deal, listen carefully. <clears throat> is that wrong? Maybe, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here, right? It's not. Jesus is saying, love like I love. And Jesus has taken shame into himself by picking up a towel and picking up a cross. And when Jesus loves, it costs him something. Because he looks past all of this stuff, because he knows, he looks past all of these things, all of these different motives and selfishness, he looks past all of that because he knows that his love pushes us out of the darkness and into the light of the glory of God. And now it's our turn to do the same. That's how love is a divine disposition towards others for their good. And this takes us right to what love does. And it, it's still annoying and sad that there's st still people who after they hear that part of the definition, they still mistake love 
for a feeling somehow, and that's why our question is extended to what is love and what does it do? Don't even forget, look, <clears throat> you, you can't make this up. This is how prevalent this is in John. The last chapter of John, last thing in the whole book. Peter, do you love me? Oh, you know I do. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Oh yeah, absolutely, tend my, tend my flock. Peter, do you love me? Oh yeah, I do. Feed my sheep. Love, love, love acts, it, it does something. And if we consider our passage in light of everything that Jesus is saying that night and all of the Gospel of John, it's very safe to say that love gives of itself to serve and care for others. We already read what Jesus prays at the end of John 17. He prayed, Father, you gave them to me because you loved me. So love gives. And it gives of itself to serve and care for others. So much of pastoral ministry in my experience is not just shepherding and caring for people, but encouraging others to shepherd and care for people. And I hope that is a river flowing out of what Jesus says here. And this service can be massive and sacrificial and powerful and beautiful. Think of the cross, but also think of the towel. It can be simple and practical and small and thoughtful. All of it can be under the umbrella of love, giving itself in the service of others. And right here, it's just, it's hard to improve on Charlie's thought that in Jesus' name, none of us is ever too good or too important to apply our hearts and hands to the places of greatest need. And that's exactly what's in view when Jesus says, love one another. But let's drive it home just a little bit more because we are living in a perfect uh, test tube for this. So yeah, supposed to love everybody. Yeah, Jesus even says love your enemies. But particularly here, he's talking about his followers loving each other. So let's talk about Christianity and politics for a minute. And I can guarantee you that you are not thinking about what I'm thinking about because I'm thinking about the socio-cultural, contextual, historical, and etymological root of the word political. Sorry, nerd brains. The Greek word for polis is the word where we get political from. It's also the word where we get metropolis from. And in the New Testament, this Greek word polis means city. And from Matthew to Revelation, God's people are a city and we will be a city. The last thing we see in the entire New Testament is God's people as a politic. We are a city, the new and heavenly Jerusalem. But Jesus says in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, hey, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, you are a city set on a hill. As the church, we are a politic. And the implication is that every kind of earthly politic is watching how we politic. And in John 13, Jesus is saying that the constitution of how his followers are to be a politic is love. And here's here's where it gets fragile. Here's where we're in the test tube. I know multiple people, not randomly, multiple people in this church, in this room, who love Jesus, people whose lives I want to emulate in certain ways who will cast their votes differently in a couple months. And for some of you, to hear that, you get, you get a little bothered. Cross your arms. Some of you just move straight past bothered to outraged, right? You just do not pass go, do not collect 200 outraged, right? Up, that's you over there. And you think in your mind, there is no way, it's not possible to be a Christian and vote for that party or that candidate. 
And for some of you to think that there is a Christian who might even be sitting in your row right now who is going to vote differently than you, your primary thought is that you should convince them rather than love them, and that is not the way of Christ. Political extremism does not yield the life and love of the gospel. And listen, we all know that one of the number one reasons why people reject Jesus or leave the church is that they say the church is just full of a bunch of angry, judgmental hypocrites. And here, Jesus says that if the world sees us loving each other, the world will know. Know is experiential and relational in the Bible. The world will come to know God's love in Christ. And I think it's great. It's absolutely important for Christians to have political discussions. In fact, by God's mercy, when we do that lovingly, I think it's a great evangelistic strategy. I think that's what this passage is saying, that the world will be blown away when they see our love for one another. And those discussions should all be framed by how we as believers are God's politic in the world. But sadly, if you throw stuff out on Twitter or Facebook, thinking that you're doing God a favor by posting something political and you are not loving and serving and caring for and encouraging and supporting Jesus followers who might disagree with you, you are not doing the constitution of love that you're called to that will outlast the constitution of this great country. And I'm saying this as somebody who has failed at this point. I'm not saying I do it perfectly. I'm saying this is the kind of love that should be our standard. Again, to love, you gotta get this. To love like Jesus might cost you something and sometimes it might cost you the fleeting feeling of thinking that you are right. And that is nothing compared to, it is a joke compared to what it costs Jesus to love us. On this, N.T. Wright says, we are bound to cringe with shame at the way in which professing Christians have treated each other down the years. We have turned the gospel into a weapon and we have hit, hit, hit each other the head with it. We have burned each other at the stake with it and we have defined one another so tightly that it means only love the people who reinforce your own sense of you and all of your preferences and all your politics. And this is especially true because what's at stake here is more than Christian love. What's at stake is other people far from Jesus coming to know Jesus. Verse 35, by this, all men will know, will experience that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. <clears throat> this love never includes, never includes thinking that you are better than the person you're called to love. And like Jesus, this love always includes giving your life away for others so that they can know God more intimately and be a part of his family. And Jesus, please have mercy on us when we don't do this. Well, eventually, <clears throat> uh, our Oxford friend David, he, uh, he found a good definition of love. So congrats, David, it's one that satisfies him. It's one kind of like the one we're talking about, one that's better than empty attempts in a bar that night. And, and this definition and understanding of love has indelibly changed him and, and given him <clears throat> hope. Later on in his book, David writes, love, as I have come to learn, is not God. We gotta flip it. God is love. The God revealed in Jesus Christ is the definition of love. 
This difference changes everything. And it is the cross of Jesus where God most clearly reveals his love. There, he gave, he's been reading, he gave his very self so that the whole world could know him and enjoy the intimacy that we were designed for. Something tells me our friend David has been meditating on how, not only John, but also how the entire New Testament talks about God's love and the cross. You might know some of these, but just listen to them. Just listen to these back to back. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes would have life eternal. Romans 5, God shows us his love and that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Galatians 2, I have been crucified by faith, or crucified with Christ, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ in whom we have redemption through his blood. Ephesians 5, walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Also Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her and cleanse her. 1 John 3, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, so we ought to also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 1 John 4, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent Jesus to be the atonement for our sins. Revelation 1, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, to him be glory forever and ever, amen. So, so whether you are looking at the single tree of John 13 or the entire forest that is is the New Testament, everything that love is and love does must be rooted in God's love for us in the cross of Jesus. Everything, all your relationships, all your feelings, all your emotions, all your experience, experiences, they have to bow before and be interpreted by God's love here. All Christian understandings of love must be rooted in God's love for us in the cross of Christ. There's a fountain of love there where love forgives and love liberates and love cleanses and it empowers, it sympathizes and love serves. And only here, you gotta get this, please get this, only here is there lasting love. And how do I know that the lasting love is right here? Because death couldn't hold him down, right? His love is stronger than death. And guess what that means? That means that love lives, love lives. And here is the really, really fun and really, really scary part. Jesus wants for his life and his love to live on in us. Do you gotta feel the responsibility of that? And that's terrifying and glorious. Love lives and he wants it to live in us, love one another just as I have loved you. That is John 13. And guess what that means? <clears throat> this is not a standard that's out of reach. That means it's possible for us to love each other, serve each other, go out of our way to provide for each other. That means it's possible to disagree with each other on something peripheral and still have unity. It's possible to care for and defend and encourage one another. It's possible to have fellowship and enjoy one another so that the watching world might, God's, might see God's love spill out of our sacrificial bond for one another. And this is possible only as we look to the cross of Christ. It is only possible when he is our standard and he is the goal and he is the definition of our love. That's the only way it'll happen. 
Fellowship Greenville. A new commandment he gives us that we love one another just as he loved us and he laid down his life for us. And may we never not be blown away by his love for us. And in this love, the world will know that we are his disciples. I hope that's good news for you. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, as we behold divine love in Jesus crucified for us, stir in us, right here in this room, people in this faith family, stir in us especially and uniquely a holy kind of love for one another that reflects and images Christ, the love that you have for us. Please, Holy Spirit. And make the watching world take notes because they're left speechless at how we love each other. Jesus, may we never tire of and never cease to be amazed at your love for us. I can't believe you love us. Thank you, Jesus, so much. Jesus, we love you. You're the best. Amen.